The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, my ambition, she once wrote, is not only to be empress, but authoress of a whole world. An intriguing quote, but the multifaceted 17th century writer Margaret Cavendish was an intriguing woman. Born in 1623 to an aristocratic family, she became a passionate writer, taking on subjects like gender and science and philosophy, brazenly publishing under her own name at a time when women rarely did so. Her pioneering proto-novel, The Blazing World, published in 1666, has been called one of the earliest works of science fiction. A passionate writer and a passionate person, complex, controversial, and courageous. We talk to Francesca Peacock, biographer of Margaret Cavendish, today on The History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Happy January Day, MLK Day here in the States, for those of you who are here in the States, I guess. I guess you could celebrate MLK Day anywhere. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for checking us out today. It's a good day here at the History of Literature podcast. Margaret Cavendish is up first, and then how about we visit with Patrick Whitmarsh, who is here to discuss Anthropocene fiction and vertical science back a year or so ago. We'll have a cameo appearance, some thematic ties here. But first, Margaret Cavendish. This woman was was a kind of literary superstar, a London legend, the 17th century literary equivalent of the Beatles and Beatlemania, chased by 100 boys and girls, running, looking upon her. The diarist Samuel Pepys once wrote, The whole story of this lady is a romance, and all she do is romantic. She arrived naked-necked, he said. <laughs> what a scandal. At one play that she and or her husband had written, her actually her husband apparently wrote it, but everyone thought that it was by her, which made it uh, a hot scene to go see. She arrived at the premiere in what her biographer calls an extravagantly provocative outfit, with a dress so low cut that her breasts were all laid out to view. A young man about town named Charles North said, The Duchess Newcastle is all the pageant now discoursed on. Just who was this wild writer beset by crowds, we are told, as if she were the Queen of Sweden? All the town talk is nowadays of her extravagancies, said Pepys. Well, let's hear a little of that town talk, and more importantly, hear about just what kind of a writer she was. Francesca Peacock, who's written a biography of Margaret Cavendish, is next. Okay, joining me now is Francesca Peacock, an author and arts journalist from London. She writes about books, art, and culture for The Telegraph, The Times, The Spectator, and Prospect, among other publications. She's here today to discuss her first book, Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. Francesca Peacock, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Um, very excited to talk to you. So, I imagine you write about a lot of different things as an arts journalist. What was it that brought your attention to Margaret Cavendish? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So I read English literature at university and um, was always very interested in a slightly later group of women who form like a part of intellectual history. So women writing in the early 18th century about like changes to their gardens, which although it sounds bizarre, become a way of talking about new ideas in philosophy and how they kind of saw the world around them. And then I became very interested in men. And if you trace them back about another 50 years, you get to Margaret Cavendish. Mm. And I was reading more and more about her and became really fascinated by this woman who seemed so utterly bizarre and so little known about outside of academia um, and I just really wanted to learn more about her. Yeah. And when did you know you wanted to write a book about her, to, that that there was a book here that needed to be told? I think that's a very good question. So I'd been reading a couple of biographies. There are a couple of extant biographies. A very early one was written in the 1950s, which is now quite a few things are out of date and things were wrong at the time when it was written. And then there was another one written very early on in the 21st century by Katie Whitaker. It's a great book, um, but I really wanted to write a book that would be like, more mainstream and more accessible and really tell Margaret Cavendish's story to like a wider audience, especially mm. in this year, which is 2023, because it's the 400th anniversary of her birth and the 350th anniversary of her death, as well as, I think, an anniversary. Her first book was published in 1653 as well. So it's a key year to try and draw more attention to her. And I really wanted to bring her to a wider audience. Right. Okay. So you've already gotten a couple of biographical facts on the table for us. Let's fill them in. So she was born in 1623. She lived for 50 years. Who was Margaret Cavendish? Yes. So she is the first Duchess of Newcastle. So she's born in 1623 to a not particularly aristocratic family. They're the Lucases. They live in Essex, which is part of England. And she is born to a family which are royalists. That is, they support the king. That becomes very key later on. And they're wealthy. They have a lot of money, but she's not really, you know, she's not aristocracy by that mm. point. Mm -hmm. And she eventually ends up through a winding way, which I'm sure we will get into, uh, becoming the first Duchess of Newcastle and becoming a very, very famous woman in early modern England. And she is one of England's first feminist authors, one of the earliest women to publish her writing under her own name. She's a very early female scientist, philosopher and poet. Um, it's a real tragedy that people haven't better heard of her because her work is brilliant. Mm, right. Okay. So that's a good nutshell summary. And because you, you mentioned that she didn't have a particularly aristocratic childhood, I guess I'd say, what did that mean in terms of her education? Yeah, that's a really good question. So she um, had older brothers and she lived with all of her siblings and her widowed mother in a house called St. John's Abbey. So it was a former abbey that had become a house after the dissolution of the monasteries. And she lived there with all of her brothers and her sisters. And in her autobiography, she writes, you know, how she was taught to do dancing, needlework, but never anything truly intellectual. And mm. she actually, you know, she could read and she would have read all of the books that she had available to her. Um, and she would have learned things predominantly asking questions from her older brothers. And she talks quite sweetly about how they would always help her, which is lovely. But she didn't have any tutors, for example. But she did even from her very earliest days, take herself off to write in private in these books she mm -hmm. called her baby books, mm -hmm. which tragically we don't have anymore. But yes, yeah, so always very interested in writing from a very early period. But she is part of this generation of 
female intellectuals and scholars, some of them who did have very good education. So there's one of her contemporaries, it's called Lucy Hutchinson, and she's on the other side of the Civil War that becomes so important in Margaret Cavendish's life. She's Calvinist, and she was properly educated because her parents really believed in educating women. You know, she could read Latin, could read Greek, worked on a lot of translations later. But Margaret Cavendish is on the other side of that, where women weren't necessarily, you know, raised to be incredibly well educated, and it comes before there is a widespread move towards female greater education, which happens after her lifetime. Right. Yeah, not particularly well educated, but did learn so much later on in her life. And I'm sure we'll get onto it, but was taught a lot by her husband and his brother, who were both very keen amateur scientists. Mm, Okay. Well, just to stick with her childhood for one more question. A lot of times we'll see that there's a champion, like a a father who believes that his daughter should be just as well-educated as his sons, or somebody who champions the the young girl who's obviously as bright as her siblings or that kind of thing. On the other hand, sometimes the best we can see is that they at least didn't discourage her. Where was her mother in terms of having this young girl who's interested in in learning and and wants to do writing? Did she have to hide it from her mother or anything like that? Um, So her mother is a widow. Her father died when mother was incredibly young. And uh, she's the youngest of a huge number of siblings, so I uh, wouldn't have known her father at all. She always praises her mother as being like kind of a perfect widow, so living a very secluded life, although it's hard to know what it, what is real and what is Margaret trying to preserve her mother's memory yeah. um, after like the ravages of the Civil War and everything. So I don't think she would have had to hide anything. I think she did take herself away to write in private away from all of her siblings, some of whom were married by that point and had left the house. She was quite a lovely detail is that she throughout her life was always very interested in fashion was always wearing clothes that she had designed herself and she was doing that from even her youngest years so I think her family were broadly supportive what they were mostly worried about was the fact that she was so shy she was very anxious Mm. and you know she writes very touching stories in her autobiography about waiting outside of her sister's um, small room while she's praying to make sure that she could still hear her breathing or waking up in the night to check that her siblings were still alive so I think at the time in there that it isn't necessarily to do with her intellectual pursuits, which by all accounts, her family were quite happy to indulge. Mm, okay. And so let's move on to William Cavendish. Who was he and and how was he able to support her, I guess, as a, a thinker and a writer and as a, a woman? Yeah. So uh, the Civil War in England breaks out. Things start rumbling around in the 1640s and then all-out war, descent into war by about 1642. And Margaret Cavendish's family were very royalist, so her older brothers um, went off to fight. And Margaret, as a very young girl, about 20, decides she wants to be a lady-in-waiting to Henrietta Maria, who is the mm. wife to Charles I. So she travels to Oxford to become her lady-in-waiting and is very, very shy, writes these plays about her time there where she describes herself as Lady Bashful. Then in 1644, the war is getting more intense. They're living in Oxford. Henrietta Maria has just given birth and they flee to France because there is another greater presence of the fact that, you know, Henrietta Maria could die in this war. She yeah. could be captured and killed. So they flee to France. Very, very dramatic boat journey. Eventually get there, end up in Paris. And when they're there, they've moved into the French court um, because Henrietta Maria's parents are French. 
that's how uh, they end up being there. And then Margaret Cavendish is there, kind of hating the whole time, very terrifying journey, didn't speak in French, very, very shy, ends up getting dysentery. It's all going very badly mm. wrong. And one day, a very overdramatic man turns up at court. He's dressed <laughs> in completely ridiculous clothes. He's got gorgeous horses, a ridiculous carriage, and he turns up, and this is all an act, but she didn't know this at the time. It was an all an act in order for him to try and get better credit. He was so broke, he'd borrowed money in order to look very wealthy. Um, so he turns up, and she's like, who is this man? And it is William Cavendish, who at that point is not a duke, he's a marquis, uh, and which means that she had been fighting on the royalist side of the Civil War as well, and had in fact fought with one of Margaret Cavendish's brothers. And he had had to go into exile after a really disastrous battle where everything had gone wrong. So he was now in exile. She meets him there and they start corresponding by these like really gorgeous love letters that still exist in the British Library. And they're so moving and touching. She writes letters to him being like, I'm so sorry if you can't read this. It was so early that I was half asleep um, or pray, leave the fault of my handwriting to the pen, uh, which is completely lie <laughs> to her, her handwriting was abysmal. Um, and he writes her all of these love poems in response at a rate of more than one a day over their courtship. And she's very, very worried that she can't get married because she doesn't have Henrietta Maria's permission. And they end up doing it without the Queen's permission. And mm. um, very, very, very nervous times. But yes, so she ends up marrying William Cavendish, who is about 30 years older than her. And they actually had a very, very sweet relationship. But he was far more aristocratic than she was. So he was the grandson of Bess of Hardwick, who was a very wealthy woman during the Elizabethan period who had built Chatsworth House, which is a glorious country house in England, in the north of England. And so he was very wealthy, came from a very wealthy background. He isn't wealthy by this point, but that's because of the Civil War. And was very well educated and could also be at the centre of this network of 17th century intellectuals and scientists and philosophers who he had all supported as their patron. So he knew Thomas Hobbes, he knew Ben Johnson, so very big figures in the 17th century intellectual writing world. And Margaret Cavendish marries him and enters into this world. So his brother pays for a scale model of the solar system in order to be able to teach her about the planets. They buy her a microscope so she can look at things. Mm. Um, and they teach her about science, the scientific method, as it's kind of in its very early stages, about philosophy. She manages to sit in at a dinner with Thomas Hobbes and uh, Descartes where they're discussing huge philosophical arguments and then she writes in her autobiography that she couldn't understand the word because she didn't speak any French which I'm not quite sure I believe but it's a hilarious detail um, <laughs> and it's just it's really lovely so she enters into this intellectual scientific world through her husband and he teaches her a lot but from a very early period she actually uh, makes it clear that she was thinking for herself and was disagreeing with him um, which is important too. Right. The description of her as a young person being so painfully shy and the description of in her later years seems so at odds with that. Did Cavendish unlock something in her, a side of her personality that came out, or did she pattern herself after him and his sort of brazenness? Or did it seem like the marriage was something that was transforming her into a different person? No, I think her shyness does persist. Mm. So even into her very later years, so we have all of these descriptions of her being incredibly flamboyant, you know, ridiculously well-dressed, 
uh, going around London and being the centre of attention. But at the same time, she was always making it very clear that she was incredibly shy at the same time. So I think they're two sides of the same coin, like a desire to be taken seriously in the centre of attention, but at the same time, a horror of a kind of real nervousness about it as well. I think they're mm. more connected than we might think. I think the marriage does change her in a way in that, you know, marriages do, in that she is, you know, introduced to a new world and is able to have access to all of this. But it's it's very interesting that it's always been kind of put on a pedestal when people historically have written about Margaret. They've always used her marriage as an example of the fact that while she was so brave and brazen and wrote these books and was a very bold woman, she was also a wife and was like a very loving wife. Um, I think that's slightly a flawed image and is one that historians have maybe latched onto in order to make her seem more palatable. They definitely have a more difficult marriage than has been previously thought. And I found evidence of disagreement and mm. even perhaps hints of infidelity, which are you know, very difficult when you're reading it in a poem. You don't know how much is fiction and how much is fact. But William wrote poems uh, suggesting that perhaps Margaret had been unfaithful. I think it's a really interesting question. I think I think historians maybe in the past, particularly in the 1950s and even actually up to the 1980s, kind of latched onto the marriage uh, as a symbol of her like feminine dutifulness. But I think we can move beyond that now and see the problems with it and also see you know how much it did give her and how much it brought her into the world and she was able to write and publish and read all of these books Hmm. okay well that's perfect let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with more about the 17th century pioneer margaret cavendish and in particular her writing Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. 
Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, we're back. Francesca, when did Margaret Cavendish start writing the works that we care about today? Yes, so uh, her and her husband, William, were in exile in Europe. They actually stayed in exile for about 16 years mm. uh, in total. And after being in France and Paris and then Paris Saint-Germain, they moved to Antwerp to Rubens, the artist's old house that they rented off his widow. Mm. And while they're there, they set up a kind of academy where Margaret can learn about everything that interests her and she has access to books and access to scientific discoveries and Hobbes appears and as does Descartes. So all of a sudden, it's like she's learning everything at once. She actually starts writing there and her first book she starts working on is not the first book she publishes, but this is called The World's Olio and it's kind of her prose essays and debates with herself about ideas. So she'd say, you know, my husband told me this about monks, but I believe this. So from a very early period, we see her disagreeing with what she's been taught, but thinking things through and reasoning them out, being very independent with her thought. She writes essays on heroines from Shakespeare plays and disagrees with how people normally interpret them, or, you know, figures from history where she disagrees with how people normally uh, talk about them. So very, very, very independent. But her first book actually is called Poems and Fancies, and it comes out in 1653. So in 1653, Margaret and her husband's brother, Charles Cavendish, get on a boat and travel to London. So during the Civil War, royalist um, soldiers, estates and money were seized by the parliamentarian side because they were seen as delinquents. You know, they fought against what was now the government. And so the idea was they weren't allowed to have any of their property. But if you were the wife of a royalist soldier or commander, you were meant to be allowed to have a portion of his estate because you were one of his dependents. So Margaret travels to London in a bid to try and get a portion of William's estate because they have absolutely no money at all and really need it. So she travels, ends up having to speak in a courtroom, gets told eventually that she can't have any of his money because she married him after he was, quote unquote, a delinquent. So she married him knowing that he was broke and had no money and was a royalist soldier. They won't give her anything. But while she's there, she ends up publishing her first book, which is called Poems and Fancies, and it's a collection of poems about her life, kind of biographical details, her exile into France, her experiences of war, her brother's death during the Civil War. But she also writes about atoms, about fairies, about all of these things that we wouldn't necessarily associate with an early woman writer. So she had been learning so much about Epicureanism and atomism, which are these new ways of looking at the world, which really come to the fore in the 17th century. So it's kind of the age of the amateur scientist. Uh, nobody exactly knew how the world worked, and everyone was trying to work it out. And one of the theories was that all the matter in the world could be boiled down, if you looked at it closely enough, into individual atoms that moved mm. about with complete randomness. So she writes these poems about atoms moving about as if they were fairies or by complete chance. 
alongside poems where she describes her fight into exile or horrific battles or really moving poetry about her brother's death. Um, and she publishes this in 1653 under her own name, which was really rare at the time for mm. a woman to do so. It's kind of like putting yourself out in the public world on a stage. And she does that while she's in London and then she travels back. And then from then on, uh, until her death in 1673, she publishes a further 23 volumes, which is a huge amount of work. Everything from more poetry to two volumes of plays to prose works about philosophy and early works of science. So yeah, she's an incredible writer. So what did that mean that she was publishing under her own name? Did that mean that she was subjecting herself to critics who would object to her just based on her gender? Was it harder to get the uh, to find publishers who were willing to do it? Or was it the reading public who would be biased against her? Or why was this a, an obstacle or a challenge? What exactly did it mean? Yeah, so it's not actually a particularly gendered problem. So in the early modern period, print was not really the way that a lot of aristocratic people or even many writers, most writers, circulated their work. So people would write, for example, if we take John Donne, very, very um, famous English poet whose work eventually is printed uh, posthumously. And Margaret Cavendish is a huge fan of John Donne, so he's a very good example. But during his lifetime, his poetry was only ever circulated in manuscript, which meant mm. that, you know, mm-hmm. people would copy it out, read it amongst friends, or send it in a letter to each other. The culture of, there's so much more of a poetic culture than we are now, you know, things would be circulated, almost like how we'd read the back of a serial packet, people would read really brilliant poetry. And it's just so much more part of their culture, very different reading culture. Right. But, all of these people were not necessarily printing their work. So we have this thing called manuscript publication, you can call it, or manuscript circulation, which doesn't mean that the work remains private. It's still read by huge numbers of people. But that print was seen as something that was more stigmatized. So a very famous scholar has called it the stigma of print. People didn't want to put their works into print because it's seen as somehow grubby. You know, you're asking people to pay for your writing. It's seen as putting yourself out on the public stage. It's not really seen as doing Doing something which somebody who's very conscious of their social standing would do. Mm-hmm. So it's less of a gendered problem than it is one of just sheer bravura. And it is also clearly, there is also a gender element as well. Even fewer women were publishing their work. And when they did so, the comments which they got in response would be more along the lines of, you know, seen as akin to prostitution in a way, you know, putting yourself on the stage. Afroban gets it a lot and is accused of needing a pimp to sell both her and her writing. So yeah, really interesting. And Margaret does it perhaps because she doesn't really have a network of readers who could read her work in manuscript in England at the time. She lives in exile, where in the middle of the protectorate, you know, so that post-Civil War period where parliamentarians were in control. So she wouldn't really have had a network of readers to read her work via manuscript. And also because she writes so eloquently about how much she did just desire fame. She mm. wanted to be read and to right. be known. <laughs> So she has a very different approach to all of this than so many other more famous male authors from the period. Um, Mm -hmm. She is preceded by a couple of female authors who had done the same thing. So one of them is Lady Mary Roth, who publishes her kind of like prose romance work, The Urania, before Margaret Cavendish does, and she gets massively attacked for doing so and ends up not publishing the rest of it in print and circulating it in manuscript instead. But Margaret did receive, you know, letters calling her all sorts of awful things were circulated among other people, debatable how much she actually heard about people, what people were saying about her. But she carried on. She just carried on, wanted to be in public. 
Yeah. Even more than money, it seems like fame was motivating her. Yeah, so it's quite hard to tell how much money she would have made from publication. Uh, so publication worked very differently then. You did not necessarily actually, publishers didn't necessarily buy the book and give money to the author in order to publish it. Very often authors did pay for their works to be published. It does work along very different lines. And I became really fascinated by this and wanted to see if there was evidence of Margaret paying for her earliest works to be published because she was so broke at the time that I didn't feel there could have been. And I was, you know, searching. She writes about how much they didn't even have the money to make it from the docks up to London. And they had to pawn Charles's watch in order to get there. So to me, it seemed like they wouldn't have had the money to pay for publication. And later on in her career, we know that she did the more usual route of paying for her books to be produced. And that's why they were more beautiful, larger format, with glorious illustrations, like big engravings on the frontispiece and everything. But at this point, it didn't appear that she could have paid for publication. So, but then on the flip side, I also couldn't find any, any trace of any evidence anywhere that a publisher had paid her for her book either so we don't know but I think there was a strong chance that her earliest work she did publish in order to try and get some money um, which would have made her you know a professional author and one of the first female professional authors preceding Akaban who is normally the one who's wrong for doing that but there's a frustrating lack of evidence and I think that's always always the way <laughs> it's hard to know but yeah the money question is a really interesting one it's so Interesting, too, because she doesn't come from a world where you would expect her to to be a champion of the non-aristocratic or something. That Ordinarily, if you hear something like this, you'd think maybe they were thinking, well, it's time that we reach the masses because this shouldn't be an elite endeavor or something like that. But yeah. but she was in those circles and, and she had been in the Queen's Court and so on. So it, it does seem... Uh, kind of curious that she was looking for fame among a general public when others were content to just uh, be famous among their rarefied set. Yeah, I think we have to be wary of like the general readership who would have been able to buy her books if they did buy them, you know, not a huge number were printed. But if they were bought, they wouldn't have necessarily been super affordable and nor would general public en masse in England at that time probably weren't reading her works mm. but she did want to be known beyond a small circle definitely yeah. and later on in her life when they moved back to London after the restoration back to the UK so after 1660 she there are stories of her being followed around London by mobs of children and huge swathes of the population so by the end of her life she was known in a far more general sense beyond an elite you know limited rarefied circle but it's debatable whether that was for her writing or if that was for just the spectacle she presented always wearing the most ridiculous clothes yeah. um so you're right it's a really interesting question yeah yeah let's talk about her as a spectacle there's a, a famous incident in april of 1667 where her husband is a, a play that's opening and and she shows up and and maybe you could tell us that story yeah, so it's April 1667. So they've moved back to England after the Restoration in 1660. And William had two family houses, Bolsover and Welbeck, which are kind of around the Nottingham Midlands area. But in 1665, he'd been made a duke, which gave him far more status, very, very, very high up in the aristocracy. And in 1667, they come down to London for a summer. And he has a play which is being performed called The Humorous Lovers. Everyone at the time thinks it's a play by Margaret Havendish because she is the one which seems to be taking most of the attention away from William. Mm. But 
they are sitting in a theatre box and I just found this in a letter which is now in the Bodleian to a library in Oxford and a man called Charles North is writing to his father and it's a bizarre letter because it starts off he's trying to explain to his father that he's very sorry that he married without his permission and without telling him who he's getting married to the letter ends with him asking for some money from his father <laughs> but in the middle he decides he's going to report on all the gossip in London at the time and he goes Margaret Cavendish is the, dis- the only discourse now in the town paraphrasing and he says he'd been sitting in a theatre and he'd looked up and she was in a box waving as if she was the author of the play getting all of the attention. She was wearing a dress that was cut to below the line of her nipples which she had rouged to match her lips and had attached matching nipple tassels to. So it's an absolutely brilliant outfit (laughs) and one which really wouldn't have been commonplace to wear in public in this period. It might have been done in like a private setting or if you're one of Charles II's uh, mistresses it was more common to wear dresses below that level but really not in a public setting or really not for a married woman but she does this and then he writes in the letter that he'd heard that she turned up at the theatre in a coach pulled by eight white bulls and it's at that point where you think that maybe <laughs> maybe he's making something up um, but it's completely brilliant and um, he also says that she'd been told off at court for dressing all of her servants in matching black velvet caps which is also a lovely detail yeah but it's completely wonderful so she was always known for wearing a really ridiculous coat it kind of seems like there's echoes there of William Cavendish when he showed up in Paris. Yeah, completely. Yeah. It's important to make a big entrance and you can sort of yeah. use the the buzz around something like that, even if it doesn't necessarily comport with who you are actually. Yeah, I think I think you're entirely right. And then when I read that description of him turning up in Exile in Paris, it just kind of made sense to me why she'd fallen in love with him there. I find it quite sweet, the echoes between them, even if they are a little ridiculous. Yeah. So you say in your book, who or what was this woman? A fairy queen or insane whore? Uh, and yet she's somebody who also is attempting to attend meetings of the Royal Society. So Yes. So, yeah. How did she view herself? What did she think she was up to? I think that's such a good question. So, she did end up attending, first woman ever to go into the Royal Society, which is it was founded in 1660. It, over here in the UK, it's kind of seen as the beginning of you know the scientific method, the whole mm-hmm. male scientific endeavor. And she went because she saw herself as a scientist who was working along different lines to these men. She didn't necessarily believe in their kind of empirical way they approached experiments and everything, which sounds difficult to us now because that is now the exception. Yeah, that's sort of one. (laughs) Yeah. But at the time, you have to remember that everything was still being debated and discussed. And she had problems with the way they were using microscopes, for example. She believed that if you zoomed too far in, they distorted the picture and you didn't get the truth that way. But she saw herself as an opposing figure in science. And I think she took herself incredibly seriously. So the story of her turning up at Royal Society is completely brilliant because she wears a dress which has an incredibly long train, which is kind of like aping, you know, very, very high royal fashion. But even before that, it's ridiculous, basically. And she's wearing it with a masculine coat and a masculine hat as well. So she's wearing an absolutely bizarre outfit. There's six ladies in waiting to try and help her get out of the carriage and into there. And then when she's there, she's shown all of these experiments. But she would have seen herself as a scientist on the same level, but approaching things from a different from a different way. So yeah, I think there's a tendency to really stress people call her eccentric, people say that she was ridiculous. Uh, but maybe I think it is just 
a way of her drawing attention to herself in order to be taken seriously, you know. Would she have been remembered if she didn't do this? It's another question. So yeah, I think she did take herself very seriously. So she seems to have thought, I need to have people talking about me, whether for better or worse. And I will, you know, make them look at me and make them pay attention to me. Does her writing reflect this as well? Was she writing provocatively? Was she energetic? Or or was her writing where she was doing the serious part and saying, I, I can be a I can be a showman in life and cause a lot of buzz and attention, but when people read my works, they'll see that I'm actually serious about what I'm trying to say. Her writing is absolutely brilliant. So she mixes very serious, quite heavy philosophy. So she, after she uh, explores atomism, she eventually moves away from that as a theory of matter and delves into what we would now call vitalist materialism, which is quite a complicated 17th century theory of matter, which I won't go into. But she is exploring very, very heavy subjects of 17th century philosophy. But she does so in a way that is incredibly energetic and lively. So mm. one of her most famous works is called The Blazing World. Mm. And it's published right. in 1666. And it is now the first work of science fiction. So she begins a whole new genre with her work. And this is a work which is all about, in many ways, satirizing the men of the royal society and their ways of looking at the world. But she does it in an amazing way where she anthropomorphizes all these animals and calls them like lice men who explore the world or ant men, mole men and everything. So it becomes incredibly amusing. And a lot of her work is actually consciously energetic and lively and humorous because it is in direct opposition to what was being proposed by like the Francis Bacon school of idea where you would write scientific writing incredibly clearly without resort to a fictional world, for example. Mm. And she does it the other way. And um, I think it means that they're texts which really stand the test of time to read for pure joy as well as for the science within them. And her poetry is also incredibly, you know, always jumping from one image to the next. Her plays are brilliantly in-depth explorations of like the feminine experience very very proto-feminist although i argue in the book that we probably shouldn't call her proto-feminist for a number of different reasons i think it divides up a feminist history to women who are like kind of before what we would now call feminism and so it's a bit of a reductive idea but i think that she is writing plays which are incredibly early and brilliant and talk about like feminist ideals what we would now identify as yeah was she valued by others in her time, other writers and, and readers? What was the reception to her works? Yeah, so um, a lot of her works end up in institutional libraries in Oxford and Cambridge, and they are circulated throughout Europe. But that slightly happens because her and her husband, William, embark on a campaign where they send them to very well-known men and librarians and everything. And she has all of these brilliant letters written in Latin congratulating her and calling her the cleverest intellectual princess in the world, which I think is a great title. But other readers were less sure. So Mary Evelyn is the wife of essayist John Evelyn, who calls her work ridiculous, and other people were less sure. But at the same time, there are a number of people who did take her very seriously and wrote either repost to her, which is an example of them taking her seriously. You have to take them seriously to disagree with them. You can't just think they're ridiculous. Or writing, you know, expositions of her work, 
where they explored what it is that she meant. And I think now is the time as well where we can take her work intellectually seriously because we're not bogged down by 17th century ideas of what a woman should be. So in my book, I argue that now is really the time where we should be studying her as a philosopher. She should be included on university courses. We should read her. There should be edited, more edited editions of her work out there people to read and engage with. Do we take her science and philosophy seriously, or do we ascribe to it at least a view of that creativity can sometimes get at truths that those other areas can sometimes miss? Um, I argue we really do have to take it seriously. So there's a philosopher, David Cunning, who has argued that the only reason we don't take Margaret Cavendish seriously as a philosopher is that very, very few people have sat down and read her from beginning to end. Mm. And now, for example, if you're an undergraduate studying philosophy or if you are just a casual reader wanting to read a very famous work of philosophy, if you pick up just looking at one above my desk now, a copy of Hobbes' Leviathan. You can read it from cover to cover in a Penguin edited edition. And it looks like something which is incredibly accessible to read. It has the critical apparatus, which makes it look like a work of philosophy that you should respect and take seriously. Mm-hmm. If you want to do the same to Margaret Cavendish, there are very, very few edited editions of her philosophical works. There are a couple, but they're very expensive, mostly exist in institutional libraries. So if you do want to read her work, you have to read it in digitized page scans of books from the 17th century, which means there's such a barrier to your taking it seriously or seeing it as a historical artifact rather than as a work of philosophy which is relevant now. And her philosophy is genuinely very interesting. She writes with remarkable insight about one of her big arguments is why should animals be less valued than humans? You know, that becomes a philosophical argument in the 20th century. Right. And she wrote it incredibly early on. She also uh, has a brilliant philosophical argument against uh, sexism. She also writes her theory of vitalist materialism. Now, obviously, isn't how we see the world, but it's no more ridiculous than some of Descartes' ideas or some of Hobbes, and it all contributes to a picture of a 17th century worldview. I really do argue that we should take her seriously and not just see her as an eccentric woman who also wrote some philosophy, but I think it's an uphill battle, but one that a lot of academics are actually, so in academic circles, that argument has been won. I think it is just uh, filtering out into a more general readership, and hopefully one day there will be like a very accessible edited edition of her philosophy so you can read so the blazing world is published by penguin classics and it's brilliant and you know, more people have read that because it is so easily accessible now but hopefully one day yeah i was going to say the blazing world if we just stick to literature the blazing world has value as a, an early example of science fiction and also i gather that it it brings together her poetry her philosophy her views on science and and it's packed with a lot that would help us to see just how curious and how brilliant she was Yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant book. So it's kind of utterly bizarre. It starts off with a woman who is kidnapped and then gets taken by a boat into, she's essentially rescued, and she goes via the North Pole into a different world, which is attached to our world via a portal at the North Pole. And she gets there and she's in the middle of loads of ice and some bear men carry her through to a more temperate climb. She ends up marrying the emperor there. He makes her the empress of the entire world. And then he recedes into the background. He's not really mentioned again in this book. So this empress is in charge of a whole world. And it's where the brilliant line, I want to be an empress and an authoress of the whole world, which is what mm. Margaret Cameron says, comes from. Yeah. One of the best lines ever. And so she's in charge of this whole world. Mm. 
What does that mean exactly? She wants to be not only an empress, but authoress. So the idea is that she's in charge of a whole world, but she's also created the entire world. Right. Um, it's kind of a vision of female creativity. I think it's a really beautiful, really beautiful moment um, comes in the blazing world. And she, as the empress, very, very thinly veiled stand-in for Margaret Cavendish herself. As the empress, she goes through this world asking all of these half-man, half-animal figures who are scientists to explain the world to her, and she disagrees with them. She tells them her own thoughts. They speak back to her. So it's kind of a vision of her engaging with the scientific community, but fictionalized, and it's a way that, you know, a lot of men wouldn't have spoken to her about their scientific ideas, but they do in fiction. And so it's her fictionalizing all of her scientific reading, It's also brilliantly a description of just this absolutely amazing moment where the Empress goes, I want somebody to write down my life for me. I want somebody to write down my memoirs. And she speaks to these spirits who are in the world. And they go, oh, have you thought about getting another author to do it? And she thinks, well, why don't I try one of the famous male authors? And they're like, you can't do that because the men will just want to write their own book. They won't want to write yours. She goes through this disagreement for a bit. And eventually she says, what about Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle? <laughs> so then this empress, which is already a veiled stand-in for Margaret, end up, ends up meeting a fictionalized Margaret Cavendish. And they even exchange this kind of like spiritual kisses. Um, so... There's quite a lot in Margaret Cavendish's work, which is always toying with the idea of, you know, lesbianism and the early modern idea that very close female friendships, which kind of have a sexual element. And this appears in this book as well. So it's an absolutely amazing work, which incorporates so many of her ideas. And it's also incredibly readable. It's a very like early proto-novel, very, very early, if not the first work of science fiction. And you can read it in an afternoon. It's absolutely wonderful. Are we helped by knowing more about the the current prevailing views is it a book that comes with footnotes that explains okay when she's in this debate with this person this is actually a debate about the subjects that were advanced by so and so and and that kind of thing yeah it's definitely a book which is improved by i think knowing a bit more about the context going Mm -hmm. on you can't just read it for the sheer delight i mean it's kind of psychedelically odd um and it's really brilliant it's almost surreal um yeah, I would recommend anyone to pick it up, to be honest. I think it's great, great introduction to her. Okay. We're coming to Virginia Woolf, and we have this kind of tradition here at the History of Literature podcast that Virginia Woolf usually gets the last word because she usually says something that's so clear and so incisive that we just think, well, we're not going to do better than that. So we just end the podcast with her <laughs> after her quote. But in this case, I'm I'm guessing that you maybe object a little bit to the quote she has. It's so famous, and it seems to have kind of defined the way at least a couple of generations of people viewed Margaret Cavendish. So maybe I should read the quote so we get that on the table. Yeah. Go ahead. I will vociferously disagree, but go ahead. Good, good. Okay, so she's. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful part of the part of the. Uh, the seduction of Virginia Woolf is that she's she's such a strong writer. It's her prose is so compelling that it makes it feel like she's said the last word on something, maybe even if she's gotten something wrong. So she says, quote, the vast bulk of the Duchess, she's talking about Cavendish here, the vast bulk of the Duchess is leavened by a vein of authentic fire. One cannot help following the lure of her erratic and lovable personality as it meanders and twinkles through page after page. 
There is something noble and quixotic and high-spirited, as well as crack-brained and bird-witted about her. Her simplicity is so open, her intelligence so active, end quote. So it's kind of a backhanded compliment, sort of like saying, well, she was clearly crazy. She's obviously all over the place. It's hard to take her seriously as a as a rigorous thinker, but but boy, she's likable. She's she's got some winning characteristics. She's full of energy, and you end up enjoying reading her, even as you kind of think that you're talking to the crazy woman in the attic. Yeah, so um, that's actually one of the nicer things Virginia Woolf says about her. She also calls her a giant cucumber and a bogey to scare clever girls with, um, which I think is one of my favorite lines. Um, so I start the book off with this Virginia Woolf moment because it's what so many people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, but Virginia Woolf is wrong, and I'm a Virginia Woolf fan as well, but she is wrong. And by the time she's writing this, it, in The Common Reader and The Room of One's Own are where she discusses Margaret Cavendish. By the time she's reading that, so in the very early 20th century, Margaret Cavendish's works were only accessible in Edison anthologies where most of her mm. writing had been cut up and loads of things had been taken out. They were divorced from their context. Kind of what I was talking about earlier about how nobody can read their philosophy in an accessible way. Mm-hmm. So Virginia Woolf only actually had access to not that much of Cavendish's original works and only these false biographies which had began to circulate in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries which accused Margaret of all sorts of things she never did, you know, like having groups of young women who she kept by her even when she slept so that she could ring a bell and start writing immediately. None of this is true and it all comes from these false biographies that saw her as more of a myth than a real woman. So that's kind of what Virginia Woolf is rehashing. She does it more wittily, she does it in better prose, and that is the image which has stayed with so many people because she writes it so well. But Virginia Woolf couldn't have read more than the edited parts which appeared in anthologies and had cut out all of the context. So I think it's very sad that often all people know about her. Um, But hopefully, hopefully, if they read the book, they will find out more. Mm. Well, our tradition of giving Virginia Woolf the last word has ended. In this case, we will give the last word to Francesca Peacock. The book is called Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish. Francesca Peacock, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to talk to you. And finally today, we hear from Patrick Whitmarsh. After he and I discussed his book, Writing Our Extinction, I asked him this special question. Okay, we're joined now by Patrick Whitmarsh, author of Writing Our Extinction, Anthropocene Fiction and Vertical Science. Patrick, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. I, I gotta say, I love this question. And I, I've thought about it for quite some time. Mm, yeah. My answer, what I would love the last book to be, and so I'm a big fan of the science fiction short story writer, Ted Chang, and he has two collections of short stories out. And so I'm imagining, you know, ahead in time, the last book I would read, I would love for it to be whatever it is, the most recent book that he's published. He's never mm. written a novel, but might very well be another collection of short stories. And that would, I think, 
right now at least. I, I would love for that to be my last book. Right. Okay. Well, that's giving him a lot. You're putting a lot of faith in in his books. You must. Uh, you must, <laughs> hopefully the the one that comes out at the opportune time isn't one that that you know his first clunker. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what do you appreciate about the works of Ted Chiang? If he keeps up the way he's been going, what I'll say is Ted Chiang's a writer who is all of his stories. I think you know are very much invested in these really I think complex and interesting sort of ideas from the history of science, the history of philosophy. But, you know, sometimes when you read that kind of hard science fiction writing that's really more invested in ideas, it loses sight of characters, loses mm. sight of mm-hmm. the people who aren't. Ted Chang, I think, is just wonderful at writing about ideas, but wedding them to stories about people. You know, and the story he's most well known for, uh, Story of Your Life, which was the source for the film Arrival, mm-hmm. uh, starring Amy Adams. Right, this kind of first contact story is just a gorgeous story. And I'll admit, you know, I, I tear up every time I read it, as I do with other Ted Chiang stories, too. Mm. I think just brilliant sort of bringing together of in-depth, complex, intellectual thinking about a lot of these kind of ideas, you know, from history, from philosophy and science, but also making them, giving them a human face, you know, putting a human story to it is something that I just find absolutely incredible and, and fascinating. And I will say, you know, if, if it does keep up, I, I have faith in Ted Chang. There's another science fiction writer I love, Peter Watts, who has said, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's something like, you know, us writers of science fiction, whenever we write a short story, we say a silent prayer, you know, please, gods of science fiction, please don't let Ted Chang publish a story this year. (laughs) (laughs) If Ted Chang publishes a story, he's going to win all the awards. (laughs) Right. So I'm especially thinking of this choice as being your last book, and it seems like I mean, the way you describe it and the way you describe its impact on you, it seems like you'll be you'll be enjoying the idea or feeling good about the idea that it will expand you and make you sort of get in touch with your own humanity. I mean, the idea that it it makes you tear up, that is not something that everyone can probably say they're going to be able to draw upon a work of fiction to do in their final moments. But it it is a beautiful image of feeling like this is humanity at its finest. Yeah, totally. I think that that's a great way to put it. (laughs) Mm, Okay. Patrick Whitmarsh, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks so much, Jack. It's been great to be here. So there you have it, some utopia or dystopia in the 17th century, and again in the 20th and 21st. When you live through interesting times, it helps to read that other authors have done the same. And when your times are uninteresting, it's also helpful, I think. Stasis never lasts long, does it? My thanks to Francesca Peacock for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed that talk with her. Her book is a cracking good read. And my thanks to Patrick Whitmarsh, too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.